Uh, so prepare yourself because this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. No surprise. Uh, and it, it, will, it will require you to be somewhat a little bit vulnerable with those around you. So just prepare yourself for that. But not, nothing crazy, nothing terrible. You won't have to hold the mic or anything like that. I just wanted to give you a warning uh, as we come to the Lord's table today, come to communion. Because we're actually at the end of the book of Mark. So again, I think we started this in January of 2022. And now we're coming to the end of it. And that is, it is something to cry about, yes. Something to sniffle about. Because it's a sad time to say goodbye to a good, a good character in a good book. But the question I want to ask, to ask you this morning, as we, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, is how does a story end? And what are we going to do with this story? Like, how does the book of Mark end? How does the story end? So last week, if you were here last week, we did a, a kind of an interesting exercise where we kind of told our own stories, we kind of built our own stories, and we saw ourselves, or I invited you to see yourself as a living story. Did anybody think about themselves as a story throughout the week? So if you thought of yourself this week, if you think of your own life, my, my, my query, my question is, can you see your own life apart from your story? Are you just a set of facts? Are you a blob of organic goo? Are you a series of data points that is in relationship to, to the physics of the universe? Or do you have meaning? Do you have purpose? Do you have direction? If you have any of those things, I suggest that you are a living story. You are a, a story embodied. And this, so again, it's no wonder that God speaks to us through each other, other stories, through scripture, story. It's the only way, I think, that we can actually encapsulate meaning. It's art. It's beautiful. And so when you come to the end of Mark, how does Mark end his story? Well, in order to do that, we have to go back to that, that grisly scene. Now, I won't, I won't go over this in detail because on Mother's Day last, uh, this past, we, I went over this Mark story of this really grisly crucifixion scene of this insurrectionist, Jesus, beside two other insurrectionists crucified like a Roman insurrectionist would be. Just a normal everyday circumstance for Rome. Slaughtering people. Really without trial, without fairness. They didn't care. And so Jesus is on that, on that cross and, it's, and, he, and he dies. He dies ra rather quickly. And in his last breath he cries out to his own father and says, look, you've left me here. Why have you forsaken me. Why have you left me here? He gasps it out. He dies. It's over. Now what Mark is really good at, and he's pointed out to us so many times before, is there's a crowd in, present in Mark's story. Always a crowd. And when there's a crowd, there's usually anxiety. And when there's anxiety, there's almost mostly always bad. But Jesus has been the scapegoat. He has appeased the crowd's anxiety, his death and his blood, 
has done the job. And so you have to imagine that it's, that it's dark now. It's abnormally dark for the afternoon, and the crowd that was present at his, at his, at his kind of mock trial, shouting for him to be crucified, the people that are walking past him, mocking him as he's dying, they're gone. The scapegoat has done its job. The anxiety can dissipate. The crowd is done. They leave. It's over. Tension has been relieved. And yet, Jesus' body is still on the cross. Where's Peter? Where's Philip? Where's James and John and Andrew and Nathaniel? And that, it's, they're nowhere to be seen. There's one man who's there, Joseph of Arimathea. He is a, a religious elite, and he does something absolutely remarkable. He's already arranged for Jesus' tomb. He already has a tomb kind of set outside for him, but he actually risks his whole life to do what he's about to do. To be associated with a dead body that's not your family, especially on the cusp of Sabbath, especially in Passover week, especially, most especially, with a crucified insurrectionist like Jesus, he risked everything to ask for Jesus' body. This is, this is a really fascinating part of the story because Peter, James, John, all of Jesus' disciples, they don't ask for Jesus' body. Joseph does. What would have happened if Joseph didn't ask for Jesus' body? If a person like Joseph who had, you know, somewhat of, a, of an elite status in the city didn't ask, Jesus probably would have been taken down from the cross and thrown into a pit, a tomb, like any old Roman insurrectionist. But Joseph, integral to the story, comes in, asks Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate says, yes. And then as he's kind of walking through the city, you can see, like, you can almost feel like at the end of a big concert or a big, a big uh, a sporting event. If you've ever left, like, the Rogers Center, I went to a Leaf game in, in well, last November, and just the, the horde of people, when you leave this huge event, there's just like a sea of people going in one direction. You can almost imagine Joseph kind of going in the opposite direction. At first to go to Pilate, and then he has to go the opposite direction through this crowd to buy the linen, the shroud to, to, to wrap up Jesus, to buy the spices, to prepare Jesus rather quickly. Because it's the noon. He has only a short window of time to take Jesus' body down and prepare him and get him ready. And so Joseph is doing this, but he's, he's not doing it alone. There's other people with him. Another remarkable part of this story. Some women. Where are the disciples? Pfft, they're gone. Who's in their place? Mark says there were women watching from a distance. Among them Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of the younger James and Joseph, and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, these women followed him and served him. They had come up with him to Jerusalem. This is, I love Mark. You see, the retrospectively look back in your imagination that this whole time, these weeks of travel, it wasn't just Jesus and his disciples. It wasn't just his, his boys. There are women with him this whole time. It's amazing. And you can see the subversiveness of Mark's narrative telling is he's actually kind of shifting the disciples out of view and he's bringing in the women into full view. 
Late in the afternoon, since the day of preparation, that is the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a highly respected member of the Jewish council, came, who's the one who lived expectantly on the lookout for the kingdom of God, working up his courage, rightfully so. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate questioned whether he could be dead that soon. That is Jesus. So he called for the captain to verify that he was really dead. Assured by the captain, he gave Joseph the corpse. Some people believe, I do, this captain is the same centurion. He was there to witness Jesus' death. He's there to identify Jesus as the Son of God. He's called on on Pilate to say, yeah, oh yeah, this guy's dead, for sure. And yes, he did die quickly. Not like most criminals who would take a couple days to slowly die. Jesus was brutally, savagely beaten. So he died rather quickly. Having already purchased a linen shroud, Joseph took him down, wrapped him in the shroud, and placed him in a tomb that had been cut by the rock and rolled large stone across the opening. Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome, they watched the burial and very likely participated in this burial. And that's it. That's the end of Jesus' life. Put in the tomb. Stone rolled over. We have to resist at this moment because my mind goes right there. The other synoptics, the other gospels, the other accounts of Jesus, the other details and facts that kind of make up this whole picture, we have to resist going there because I think if we go there, we may miss what Mark is trying to do. So just let the story come at you the way Mark tells us. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Salome, the same three women that watched Jesus die, the same three women that helped prepare Jesus' body, the same three women that helped give Jesus his burial, notice again the omission of all the disciples, they brought spices so they could embalm him. Very early on Sunday morning, as the sun rose, they went to the tomb and worried. They spoke to each other. We were there when that stone was rolled over. Who's going to roll back that stone for us? That was a big stone. Who's going to roll back the stone? They're coming very likely. Joseph isn't with them. So you can almost imply that maybe Joseph didn't complete the job. That's probably not what's happening. Joseph probably did a proper burial. Probably wasn't quick. It was quick, but it wasn't done poorly. They were coming on their own to give spices and embalm Jesus' body because that's how ancient people were buried. Put in these kind of holes in the rock on a slab of stone, wrapped in shrouds and linen, embalmed with all kinds of spices so that as the body decomposes over the year or two, the more people that come into the tomb, it's not unbearable. The stench of decomposition isn't over, like, totally overwhelming. Because the plan is that after a couple of years, the, the flesh on the body would rot away, there'd be the bones, and you collect the bones and you put it in, into a little box, into a little casket, and place them in, in the ossuary forever. So Jesus is being prepared. There's a stage of grief. There's a stage of death. You deal with the body quickly. You lay it down. You let it, you prepare it for its couple of years of decomposition. That's what the women were coming to do. 
so that this is, this is Joseph's tomb. This is, he's, he's, this is an empty tomb. There's other, other bodies are going to come into this tomb eventually. In no way on earth did they think there's no concept of resurrection in their mind. No one is thinking. No, no one, not the Romans, not the high priest. The, the anxiety of the story is squashed out. It's over. Jesus is dead like every other insurrectionist. This is just a normal thing that happens in Rome. I think I may have shared this before, but one of my favorite historical figures is Spartacus. Who's a Spartacus fan in here? A couple of you. I love the story of Spartacus. Because 70 years before, and I may have shared this before, forgive me if I have, but I love the story of Spartacus. Because he's an insurrectionist. He is a, 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 basically an innocent man take captain forced to be a gladiator in this lotus. And he starts a revolution. And he breaks out of the lotus and he starts freeing slaves. He has a just cause. And he frees tens of thousands of slaves. But he does so violently. At the peak of his power, Spartacus has like a, an army of like 150,000 men and women. And if it weren't for a couple of tiny mistakes, he could have actually sacked Rome. And the course of history would have been dramatically changed. But he didn't. And he met a violent end. He died. And all of his slave followers hung on crosses in the Appian Way. Jesus is a nobody. Nobody's waiting for Jesus to come back. The small movement is like one of so many in Judaism, so many in Rome, and the the problem has been put literally to death. The women are coming. They're saying, we just want to say our final goodbyes. We want to embalm this man and close up that tomb. Who's going to roll away the stone? And to their shock, they come to the tomb site as the sun is lifting over the horizon. And, and dawn is breaking and spilling out over this garden scene. The stone is already rolled away. There's nobody there. There's nobody guarding it. The, the stone is rolled away, and there's an open door. They're horrified. I can't imagine with them thinking, who took Jesus? And why? Why would they take Jesus? When they look up and it rolled back, Mark says, it was a huge stone. And they walked in. And they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed all in white. They were completely taken aback, astonished. He then gives us a, a suggestion of, how, of the, kind of their, their emotional state, of where they're actually feeling. They're taken aback, they're shocked. They're astonished, and they're terrified. What on earth are you doing in this tomb? Where is Jesus? Why are you here? What have we just walked into? I think they recognize this man is not a normal kind of person. Mark doesn't tell us he's an angel, but you can infer that it is. Whether they could think that in real time, we don't know. But they are astonished, and they are terrified. 
they're not thinking anything other than this is a very, very precarious, odd situation. The man says, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for the Jesus of the Nazarene, the one they nailed on the cross. He's been raised up. He's here no longer. You can see for yourself that the place is empty. Now, on your way, tell the disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going on ahead to Galilee. You'll see him there exactly as he said. They got out as fast as they could. Beside themselves, their heads swimming, stunned, they said nothing to anyone. And that's the end of the book of Mark. Who's ever read Mark to completion? If you have a Bible, like a physical Bible in your hand, if you can open up to chapter 16, verse 8, Yeah, there's Bible. Actually, there's Bible underneath you. This, this is really interesting. It's very good to, it's good to do. Everybody get, grab a Bible because there's Bibles all around under the chairs. So I'm used to talking to teenagers who never have their Bibles. They always have phones, right? <laughs> but the physical Bible is actually really interesting. If you turn to chapter 16, verse 8. Now, you may or may not know this. And if you don't know this, it may or may not blow your mind. The first time that I realized this, it blew my mind. And you may or may not know this, and if you don't know this and it blows your mind, you may feel really uncomfortable. It may cause you to feel a great level of discomfort. And if you do, that's okay. It's totally normal. Are there verses past chapter 8? Chapter 16, verses past chapter 8. Yes or no? Yes. 9 to 19. Verses 9 to 19 were added, I think, 250 years later. They're added way later. Did any, did, who knew that in Mark? Betty. There's a footnote, likely, and if there's not, then we need to get rid of these Bibles. There's a footnote on chapter 8, or there's a bracket, or some sort of indicator that this the last portion of Mark's gospel was added later by an editor, a copyist. It was not in the original manuscripts. Now that, if you didn't know that, that may or may not make you feel really uncomfortable. It may blow your minds when I first knew this, and like, oh my goodness, it blew, blew my mind. And then it made me feel really uncomfortable. Because I had this view of the Bible that lacked humanity. I grew up in a culture, I grew up in a, in a religious culture that I, 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 to say that we worship the Bible would be probably too far. But we treated the Bible like it's this com like perfectly complete divine tablets, like, like the tablets of Moses that have come down from Sinai. And it lacked humanity. It lacked the, the raw kind of like intersection of people and history and time and, and interpretation. Because I grew up in a culture that was, I think, actually quite insecure. 
It didn't give a lot of breath and, and space for questions, for even history itself. So when I first, I was a, a grown man, I came to the end of the book of Mark, and it was like this footnote, and I was like, what? The explanation, what? This part of the Bible is like added much later? That's weird. Why do they do that? Who did that? Well, you don't have to, by show of hands, you don't have to answer, but does that make you feel uncomfortable? You put up your hand a little bit, a little bit. A little weird. It's uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I just, <laughs> I'll say it's not the first time, but Marx is really interesting because it's really, really obvious. Because the, the rest of the gospel of Mark goes on, uh, you know, there's these, these experiences where Jesus shows up and there's like this commissioning. It's like, of course. But if you read it in completion, you'll notice that it sounds different than Mark. Because it is. It's not Mark. Why would they do that? Well, some scholars say that the end of Mark actually was, was destroyed. It, a couple, couple things happened. That Mark actually got sick or got arrested or something happened and he couldn't actually finish his book. He couldn't actually finish the gospel. Because it ends really abruptly. Even the Greek grammatical spot, it's like it ends on a really weird spot. It's uncomfortable. Even how in the original Greek, it's like an awkward spot to end the story. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would he do that? So maybe it's abruptly. He, he couldn't actually finish, so this scroll is taken off and you know Mark can't finish, so the, well, we can't not use it, so they, they pass it off and and that's it. And later, lots of times later, you know what, Mark? It's too bad, buddy. You're long dead, but this story just doesn't have a nice, tidy cleanup. We have to add something to it. Some people think that actually that, that story had, a, had an end, and it was destroyed. So we lost it. We don't know where it is. It's gone. And later on, copyists say, you know what? It just, ah, it just doesn't do it justice. We have to finish it somehow. We have to, have to give it a proper conclusion. Because it just doesn't work. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, that's his view, that it got wrecked. And he's a brilliant New Testament scholar. He says, no, this doesn't make sense. Mark's been pointing to Jesus' resurrection basically from the beginning. It doesn't make sense to add it right there, or to end it right there. So it had to have been destroyed. And so this second ending really isn't the real ending. But we don't know what the real ending is, so it will just have to do. Some people think, and I'm starting to be one of them, that I think Mark does it on purpose. I'm starting to, I'm starting to lean that way. That Mark did this on purpose. That this really abrupt, weird ending to his story is the women come out of the tomb. They're given the news that Jesus isn't there. And they're afraid. And they're quiet. They don't say anything. And then it's done. Why? I think, Mark, I, I don't, you'll never know. We'll never know. This is a 2,000-year-old book. For one, if you feel uncomfortable with this truth, this revelation, I didn't make this up. You, don't give me, you can write me emails and call me up and be angry at me. I did not make this up. This is not my fault. This is just the truth. This ending isn't the right one. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, if, you, if that makes you feel like, oh my goodness, how can we trust the historicity of this book? 
if that's what's happening, how can we trust it? I actually would like to encourage you that you can trust it even more. What seems like an error or an omission or an editorial redaction, you can trust it even more because that's actually how God speaks to us. It's through us. Jesus did not come as a tablet from heaven. He didn't come as a scroll from on high. He came as a living, breathing human being, a walking, talking, living story. Walking and talking and living among other stories. And the impact of that man was so compelling on history that a guy like Mark would even bother to write about it. So if it makes you feel uncomfortable, like how can we trust the Bible? I do not think these things shake the historicity of the Bible. I think they actually beef it up. Why on earth would Mark ever make this up? Why would he ever put Joseph and the women at the bottom of the cross and in the tomb? Women had no validity in those days. They're the worst witnesses. You'd never make women your eyewitness accounts. You'd never leave your story on the end with women being the carriers of this most profound truth. Why would Mark ever do that if he wanted his story to have resonating impact if it actually wasn't true? Number, the, the second thing is I think what Mark does is he actually, in a, in a very weird way, he, in a very profound, compelling way, the whole story long, Jesus has been talking about himself. He'd been showing his power, demonstrating his divinity, then definitively alighting himself on, on the mountain to show that he's actually God's son. Then very subversively, he says, everyone who's supposed to see this doesn't. But the murdering Roman centurion is the one who actually sees and calls Jesus who he actually is, the son of God. And then Mark, he doesn't omit the resurrection. He actually says, hey, this thing has happened. You failed to see me. You're not going to see Jesus in the final chapter. The angel says, yes, he's risen. He's out of the grave. He's gone. You're going to see him. And then he ends the story. And he leaves us with those women walking on that path with an unanswered conclusion. What do you do next? How does this story end? I think what Mark is asking us is how are you going to end this story? This is when discipleship really begins. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe who he says he is? Has he witnessed to your life and transformed your life enough that you would risk following him? It's not a tightly packaged wrap-up-the-bow ending. It's one that puts us right at that very definitive marker. What do you do next?
And I think Mark ends that story brilliantly. And it's, and he writes it like this, though he doesn't agree with that end. He says, it doesn't matter actually now because we'll never know. But maybe in God's providence, you come to the end of Mark and it actually doesn't matter. You have to then ask, what is the story about? There is no nice wrap-up conclusion to this story. You ha- you're, you're, to actually take it at its value, you have to say, I don't know. What am I going to do next? What, do I get, what am I going to believe? What way am I going to go with this? And brilliantly, on purpose or on accident, Mark puts it right in our faces. How does this story end? Because I think, actually, you are the ending of Mark's gospel. You are the living ending to his story. You are the, you are the writing of God's story in the world. I don't know if Mark intended that or not, but I can't help but see it. That we're here because we decided that that guy is worth believing in. And we don't have the privilege of going to an empty tune and and having these experiences. We have to, on faith, believe him. That he is who he says he is. And we have to, on faith, follow him. And our true discipleship has begun because of that. And because of that, we are the living endings of Mark's gospel. And I think that's really, really powerful. So this morning, what I wanted to do was a little bit different. Kind of warned you. I want us to come to the communion table, but I don't want us to do it in a normal way. I don't want us to do it in a, you know, in a very like solitude and silence sort of way. What I actually was hoping us to do is to have little micro meals. So getting in a little clump of people, like four or five people. One of those people can be kind of the host of the server. They can get the, the bread. I got a gluten-free option here and the grape juice. Which ironically, Foodland only had the organic, very highly priced grape juice. I hope it's good. <laughs> if you're at home, you can do this too. You can grab your stuff. If you can chat, even in a, in a chat room, that'd be really awesome. Or phone up a friend. And just briefly share your living ending of Mark's gospel. When did you first meet Jesus? When did you interact with him? What is, how has he shaped your life? Where do you feel him calling you? Not theology, doctrine, dogma, history, your own living story with Jesus in your communion time if you're able to just share your testifying of Jesus in your life. And as we come to the communion table, we remember, we're we're doing it in remembrance of Jesus, the body and the blood, his death and his sacrifice to be that final scapegoat, to end, to end all scapegoating, to invite us into communion with the Father, to have his spirit living in us, that we can be, become fully human because of him. And so in the, if, if the, the host, or you want to open up your Bibles and crack open your Bibles and read through the communion narrative, that's, that's great too. But just really hoping that we actually had a time of sharing of how Jesus is actually living out in our ending of Mark's story. Let's pray and then, we'll, and then we, can, we can get into that.
Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that uh, beyond even your text and your, and, your, and your scriptures and your narrative and the tradition of the church over the many thousands of years, that you're a living, breathing, walking, talking influence in our life. That you're not an abstraction. You're not an, a, an ideological brick in space or a belief system. You're a living being. That through your spirit, we can know you. We can know the Father. We can have communion with God. That we can be invited into this large family. That we can be invited into this large sweeping history of lives changed because of you. I thank you for people like Mark who took risk and courage to write their story down. I thank you for the many, many, many people who've dedicated their lives to studying that story, to sharing that story. I thank you to the many, 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 many people who are part of this unfinished ending because of you in our lives. And so I pray now as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to celebrate your death and resurrection, that we do so with open hearts, with vulnerability, uh, with listening ears and compassion for one another. I thank you for all the ways that you've loved us in spite of how we are undeserving of your love. And I ask you to continue to lead and guide us as individuals, as a congregation, as we navigate uh, day after day following you. In your name, amen.